I've heard stories about like Jensen somehow calling Morris Tang or something like that, right? Yeah, I think that's, you know, that was when TSMC was in a more established player. They've already hit their stride. And then I think, you're right, NVIDIA just started and then they've been trying to get orders at TSMC to no avail. And finally, I think Jensen writes Morris a basically asking for capacity. <laughs> and so I believe Morris, he gets married a second time and he's in the U.S. for holiday. And then he calls Jensen. Jensen was in like, some meeting at the time and tells him, hey, just shut up, it's Morshang on the phone. This <laughs> is like the biggest deal ever. This is Startup Island Taiwan. Everything about Taiwan and cutting-edge technology, startup unicorns, and connections to the world. Welcome to the Startup Island Taiwan podcast. My name is John. I'm your host. I run the Asian Armature YouTube channel. And I'm here today with Tim Koi, who is a historian on Taiwan's early semiconductor initiatives. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Lovely to be here. So I think the first thing to start out is just kind of walk me through a little bit with your project, learning about TSMC and Taiwan Semiconductor history. First of all, very generous of you to call me a historian of this space at all. Very much as an interested mind. Yeah, so a couple of years ago, I think right before the whole semiconductor space blew up because of COVID and whatnot, I was reading Rene Rajmaker's book on ASML's history. At the time, I found some inconsistencies about what he said was saying about TSMC from my experiences, because I sort of grew up around hearing about different different versions of this history. One from just being in Taiwan, too, because one of my great grandfather was involved in the very, very early stages of the government project. So throughout my childhood, I've heard variations to the story. And I figured I wanted to actually figure out once and for all the definitive narrative of how this all came to be. And so over the past year or so, I've been reading as much as possible on the subject, trying to find, you know, dig through all these archives, interview different people. And hopefully sometime in the near future, this will turn out to be some sort of book or a more substantive inform collection. You mentioned talking about archives and reading, like what kind of stuff you've been up to? A lot of reading sort of historical documents. Um, E-Tree has been very helpful on this end with the Pai Yuan Foundation because they have a lot of first-hand accounts and Pai Yuan himself put together this collection on. Pai Yuan was, one could say, the progenitor of Taiwan's semiconductor industry. He was very much the figurehead in terms of Taiwan's government's project with RCA, bringing in semiconductor technology into the country. We'll talk about him more later on. And then going to all these people with deep industry knowledge and experience, asking them their stories about how it all started. It's been quite a fun read so far. How have you been able to connect and find all these names? Because a lot of these people might not even be listed, right? Or you might not know who they are right off the bat. Yeah. So I started off with, you know, a couple of famous on the more sort of research academic side. I think industry people are usually hard to approach just because of the sensitive nature of their work. But, you know, once you get to know a couple, then they start introducing their friends to you. So that's the key to approaching these people. And, you know, cold emailing surprising works, as you all know. That's how I met you as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Nice. Nice. What is the time span of your project overall from the first significant event to the last documents you reviewed ended? So far, I've mainly been reviewing, I would say, the first third of the Taiwan's semiconductor history. So very much, you know, the government project, Yichi, and then to around the time when TSMC first started. And then I think you could delineate the entire history into very distinct spaces. The first part is very much government-driven. And then you had a brief period where UMC was the only player in town. And then you had TSMC. And then on, it was all basically private sector. Government had very little play other than tax incentives and whatnot. So in terms of documents, it's mostly the first half. 
starting in 1973. At the time, Premier Zhang Jingguo first had this idea of boosting Taiwan's economy, taking it to the next level, away from low-level manufacturing textiles and agriculture. There was a certain urgency among government officials at the time that they felt that Taiwanese economy was hitting a plateau. You know, without this sort of this next paradigm shift, it was very difficult to bring, you know, rejuvenate the country to a point where they could conceivably compete with the mainland. At the time, that was still very much a dream. So that's how it all started. That was, it was basically these technocrats were looking at the economic situation in Taiwan and they realized that something had to be done. Some sort of high-density, technologically-driven industry had to be built. Did Zhang Jingguo kind of suggest semiconductors directly or kind of what in particular was he thinking? Him and his cabinet were basically, it was very much an open-air question of like, let's go explore different options. So actually, one of the drivers was National Science Council. And so they picked, I think they had three main projects they were looking at. One was EVs, electric vehicles, you know, very much ahead of their time. And then they were looking at this drug production program. So basically starting up some sort of biotech. And then lastly, I believe it was uh, geothermal energy. And then on the other side, so on the cabinet side, this is where very much like a personal close network gave fruit to the same kind of idea. So at the time, Minister Without Portfolio under Zhang Jingguo was this man called Walter Fei. And then he had two very close classmates from Jiao Tong University back in Shanghai. So one was named Fang Xianxi. And he was at the time the director general of telecommunications under the Ministry of Transportation. He is most known for building out the telecommunications phone landline network in Taiwan. He pretty much built everything from scratch. And then another is aforementioned, Taiwan Yuan. Taiwan Yuan, he didn't work in Taiwan at the time. He was in the U.S. He went to the U.S. during World War II. And then he was actually in the same Ph.D. class as Walter Packard and HP. He was actually approached by the two of them. Because the story goes that Pan Wenyong was the number one in his class. Hewitt and Packard were number two and three. And so Hewitt Packard actually approached Pan and was like, hey, you know, we want to do a startup to build computers. Don't you want to join us? And I think at the time, they requested Pan to come up with something like $200 of startup finances. And then one, he couldn't come up with the money. And two, it was at a time of sort of a great national turmoil in China. So he felt an obligation that, you know, I couldn't do something so risky. I'm just going to go into industry, make money, support my family and come up with some way to help my country down the line. So that's how he ended up in RCA. And then at the time of so 1973, Pan was a managing director at RCA's telecommunication lab in New Jersey. So the three of them had discussion about future prospects for economic rejuvenation plan. And among those topics discussed was semiconductors. At the time, very much still a new thing. And then Pan very cleverly thought of a vehicle for to introduce this technology to Taiwan, do electronic watches. He understood that you know, semiconductors by itself is very it's quite an esoteric technology, especially at the time. And if you could come up with a very approachable consumer product, then the government and local Taiwanese industry will be much more interested in participating in this project. So, yeah, that's how it all originated. And then at the time, Minister of Economic Affairs, Sun Yunxian, liked the idea. And so he was the biggest political proponent. Yeah, that's how everything got kickstarted on the government side. So they brought to the idea of creating electronic watches or completing the components of electronic watches. And they wanted to kick off this project to produce these, right? Yeah. So at the time, electronic watches were not the sort of Casios that we think of today, where you have the LCD screen. It was blank, and then you had to press this button to light up an LED screen. But it was very harsh on battery, so battery life was not very good. And Pan at the time, he was seeing what the Japanese were doing with digital watches and innovations they were making there and thought that, you know, this is not a super competitive market. And then Taiwan's comparative advantage of cheap labor could basically drive market prices down. And then finally, Pan as a sort of R&D lab guy, He's very much into like fundamental science research. And so he viewed that in order for Taiwan to do anything properly, it had to start fundamentals. You had to build up this like very 
good foundation of scientific knowledge in order to have any sort of dreams of high-tech ambitions. So there was this, you know, famous breakfast meeting with Taiwan Yuan. He came back to Taiwan and then he, Walter Fay gathered all these top ministers and had breakfast at Xiaoxingxing Doujiangdian. And this is a story that a lot of Taiwanese know. And so, you know, the story goes that Pan, you know, does a speech and minister Sun Yunshen asks him how much it's going to cost. Pan says 10 million US dollars, which is quite a lot of money at the time. You know, without blinking an eye, minister Sun said, yes, let's do it. And then once the bureaucratic machine starts kicking, there are certain political maneuvers that have to be done. So they had to figure out, so because of Fang Xianqi's involvement, originally this project was under the Electronic Research Center within the Ministry of Transportation. And then this was eventually bundled into Yutri, which was already established as this. They combined three distinct sort of like mineral heavy industry centers into one thing called Yutri. And then they eventually, the Electronic Research Center was you know, very much a later add-on. And then... They decided that, you know, Yichi, because it was sort of politically acceptable organization, Fang Jinchi was not, because of his close proximity to the origins of the project, one might arouse jealousies among political competitors. So Yichi was viewed as very much a neutral player, a safe bet. Yeah, so that's how Yichi became the management entity for this project. And then concurrently, Taiwan Yuan, because he was still working for RCA at the time, so he organized this group in the U.S. called TAC, this uh, Technical Advisory Committee. And basically, he just found some of the preeminent Chinese scientists and academics in the U.S. to do basically pro bono work for the government and come up with suggestions, come up with different proposals for the project. And this was actually done because of there are these Chinese Institute of Engineers. You know, Pan was the president at the time. And so he was very, very well connected within the community, especially among U.S.-based Chinese engineers. So, you know, professors from like Bell Labs, Princeton, RCA. So, you know, these are like very, very serious and like preeminent scientists. And then on the Yichi side, the government managed to hire this guy called Wang Zhaozhen. He also had a stint at RCA, but he was very much, um, I think he was most famous for lasers. And at the time, like very well, internationally well-known, IEEE fellow and whatnot. So TAC basically kickstarts this process where they're soliciting bids for the project, right? Because the government basically said, okay, how do you get this technology into the country? And the best way was to partner with a foreign firm and have this foreign firm teach Taiwanese engineers everything they want about semiconductors. But there wasn't any like export controls or anything from like the United States at the time to say, is this legal or is this not legal? Yeah. So at the time, there was not that much. It was, I think, you know, the 70s were a different time. It was very open. And I think it was very much up to the purview of each individual company. And so, you know, they submitted bids to like, a dozen or so companies, including the big guys, right? like TI, Intel, RCA, obviously, Hughes, Harris, and all these guys. And so TI, oh, I see no, right? This is peanuts, but it was not worth the effort. And then Intel, I think at the time, you know, obviously they were still relatively young, even though they were already quite in a dominant position. But they previously had a bad experience partnering with foreign firms. They had a, a contract with some Canadian semiconductor firm basically trying to do the same thing and ended up horribly. So they didn't want to dip their toes into this endeavor. And then that narrowing down the options, it came down to Hughes and RCA. And Ichi was heavily in favor of Hughes because of cost consideration. And Time When Yuan and TAC were heavily in favor of RCA. Tech being the uh, the advisory, advisory committee, correct? And then you know there was huge political infighting between these two groups, and you know a lot sort of a lot of animosity at many points. And this neutral third party in the government actually had to bring in Morris, who was at the time senior executive at Texas Instruments and the most well known Chinese executive in the U.S. You know they asked Morris to give his unbiased opinion on the project, and he basically concurred with sort of Pan's assessment of the need for fundamental science 
understanding of how technology works. Basically coming, like implicitly come down in favor of the RCA contract. What was the big differences between the huge contract and the RCA so proposal? It was, the cost differences were quite huge. And I think there was miscommunication between Hughes and Utree as well. So because of their sort of preferences, TAC was mainly in charge of the negotiations with RCA. And then Utree was in charge of negotiations with Hughes. And so from the documents I read, Hughes misunderstood what the contract was. They thought it was just a simple turnkey, um, you know, we'll help you build a fab in Taiwan, we'll teach your engineers how to operate it, and that's about it. Whereas the project was really about hey, can we send engineers to you? You'd help us train this core of engineers to really able to run and like a proper semiconductor business in addition to helping us design and build a fab. One thing I forgot to mention was quite prescient, I think. The government project was always geared towards spinning off to become a commercial entity. Like they didn't want this to become a government project in the long run. Sort of very counter to traditional Taiwanese thinking at the time, especially, you know, given how back then it was very much dominated by all these like state-owned corporations. Was there any reason for that or they just... I think on one end that a lot of technocrats, they sort of having gone through the early stages of industrialization in Taiwan, they like saw sort of the limits of state-owned operations. <laughs> and then I think on the American side with TAC and PAN and whatnot, like they all cut their teeth at these like preeminent American private corporations and they saw the great things they could do on their sort of more market-based competition. So they were pushing heavily for that as well. And lastly, I think they also knew sort of the limitations in terms of like its ultimate goal was economic rejuvenation. Then it had to be commercial, had to be private sector because it had to be, you know, they wanted not just one company dominating the space. They wanted multiple firms like up and down supply chain doing everything. Yeah. So the Hughes contract was very much underbid because the conditions were not so clear to Hughes. And they eventually actually reneged on their first proposal because it became clear to them what the extent of the proposal was. And they came back with a much more expensive proposal. And at that point, it was quite clear that RCA was the much better choice. And incidentally, because in 1973, semiconductors industry took a massive downturn. It was a huge downswing. And so RCA's solid state division which was in charge of semiconductors, was in your cash because they had to meet their performance goals. <laughs> and so, you know, even though, let's say, $10 million US was not that much to them, it was still a good chunk of change. So they were very, very amenable to a lot of the conditions the Taiwanese government set. For example, like the amount of people they're going to train, the amount of training hours, the sort of access to their facilities, access to their technologies. And with, on the technological side, the tech recommendation also made a very prescient choice. At the time, the mainstream technology was NMOS. You know, that was what Intel was doing. That was what all the big IDMs were doing. And CMOS at the time, it was relatively new because so the difference between NMOS and CMOS at the time was, you know, CMOS was viewed as lower performance, but also lower energy usage. Right. NMOS was the opposite, you know, high performance, high energy usage. And because, you know, back then it was everything was massive, mainframes and whatnot, that energy considerations were not really an issue. But TAC saw that they were never going to compete against the big guys in the NMOS space. So we might as well find our niche in CMOS and, you know, see, see where that takes us. But they also didn't want to put all their eggs in one basket. So they did request RCA to teach them MOS as well. <laughs> <laughs> they are not, you know, super, super confident in their assessment. So RCA wins a contract. On the E-Tree side, you had very much a sort of an um, important figure in, in the space called Hu Jinghua. He was in charge of the, the training program and also a lot of the assessment of, you know, the proposals and whatnot as well. So he was not U.S. trained at all. And he had zero U.S. experience. He was actually an academic. He was a professor at NTU. Under him, there were two guys. One was uh, Si Qingtai and then Yang Dingyuan. So these were both educated in Taiwan, but then they went to get their PhDs at Princeton. And then they both took a year to work in the semiconductor industry in the U.S. So I believe Si Qingtai went to Burroughs in San Diego, and then uh, Yang Dingyuan went to Harris in 
I believe it was Florida. That's, you know, that's the official version, but apparently the non-official version of why they were chosen as team leads was one, they spoke a good English because of their U.S. experience. And two, <laughs> they both had driver's licenses. <laughs> you know, like this, the U.S. is not so not as dense as Taiwan. You have to drive everywhere. So I like the idea of like this whole whole history of Taiwanese people's like becoming prominent because one can drive and one the other can. Exactly. <laughs> you know, like that's sort of the great thing about a lot of these like startup stories, right? It's like, Looking backwards, it's like, oh, wow, they are like geniuses. They had such far-reaching vision. But like at the time, they were just all trying to figure out their own stuff as well. You know, very much just mixing and matching, seeing what sticks. So they sent two teams to Ohio, which was the main RCA fab, sort of a more legacy fab. But that was still their main production line. And then one to their new fab in Florida to do NMOS. And then, you know, they split up teams. Teams all basically recruited in Taiwan and Yishui and whatnot. And then there was like production. And then there was like a management team. And then, like, an equipment team, a design team. So within that team, you had, you know, quite famous people like Robert Tsao, who would later go on to, you know, lead UMC. It was also part of that whole group. So RCA was very open with what they were willing to teach them. I think each person was buddied up with one mentor. There was actually no really clear sort of what, there was no, like, syllabus or anything, right? There was this, like, very free form. They just kind of showed up and they're like, okay, we're going to, like, teach you how to operate these machines and, like, show you how a fab works and whatnot. What kind of semiconductors did RCA make at the time? Um, I think a lot of them for the in-house electronic products. So, you know, RCA is like famous for their TVs and uh, radios and whatnot. Not super cutting edge. So RCA was definitely not a leading edge company, even though they had scale. They were not the best in semiconductor technology. Also part of the reason why they were so willing to open up their fabs because they needed cash. They knew this wasn't some like super top secret stuff that they were sharing. I think the RCA team in Ohio, I mean, the Taiwan team in, in Ohio lucked out that they had very, very good managers and very, very good mentors teaching them. Actually, one of the supervising managers from the RCA side overseeing this uh, training program is this guy called Bernie Bonderschmidt, who would later co-found Xilinx. Oh, really? Yeah. I did not know that. Very small world. <laughs> what a small world. That is very cool. Yeah, so the Taiwan team at the Ohio FAB was having a great time. They had access to like, everything. They had access to archive that they could like, dig through, basically like, production notes, right? Like January 8th, 1973, this machine in this fab did this, you know, these sort of parameters. So they basically had, like went through and combed through the entire operations of the RCA fab. So they really, really knew their stuff at by the time they, they left. And I think around like halfway through the training program, the RCA actually stopped, decides to stop production of MMOS because it was not making them any money. So for compensation, they were like, okay, well, we won't teach you NMOS anymore because we're not producing it. So we'll teach you um, bipolar technology, which is, you know, sort of even earlier generation of technology, but it was still very much in use, especially for production of uh, digital watches. It was still very much in vogue. And so while that was going on, you know, Ichi was building up Taiwan's first fab in Shinzu. And then that was also sort of when Shinzu Science Park was first launched, right? And it was supposed to be this uh, industrial area, very much modeled on sort of previous Taiwanese industrial areas in like all the export-import zones. So, right, like you get tax cuts, you get subsidies, you get benefits. What were some other of the Taiwan export-import so zones? So, instance, like the one in Kaohsiung is a big one. So, basically, you have this uh, special economic zone where foreign firms can come and they don't have to pay taxes. But then, basically, the country gets direct investment into their industry, indirectly have your workforce trained up, and you also get a lot of uh, foreign currency coming in. And why Xinchu? Why Xinchu? So it was very much, you know, modeled after the sort of silicon, especially the, like the original Silicon Valley, right? Like Silicon Valley and now it's like all software, but it used to be all silicon, hence the name. And so they understood the need for it to be in close proximity to universities. And then this is still close to Taipei. So, you know, commute of human capital can be facilitated. 
And then in Shinzu, there was Taiwan Tsinghua University and Taiwan Jiaotong University. Both universities in previous years, they were sort of rebuilt by alumni because, you know, these universities, the original ones are in China. But, you know, once the KMT retreated to Taiwan and, you know, brought along a lot of these human talents, they recognized the need for universities and they also didn't recognize the fact that their original mother schools were in the hands of the communists. So they basically, you know, built new campuses and was like, okay, this is the new Tsinghua University. This is the new Jiaotong University. And that was very much helpful with this whole industrialization process, because now you had well-trained, smart young people coming into industry and, you know, being able to go into the work pool. So FAB was built, I think it was pretty much a one-for-one model of the Ohio FAB and RCA, but because of the expertise with TAC and the industry team at RCA also like saw what were the, the different trade-offs for that RCA was making within their own FABs. And so some modifications, right, they opted for like newer machinery uh, newer equipment and then and whatnot, like against the sort of advice on the RCA side, because they're basically like, we can't guarantee you that this will be a successful transfer if you use new machines and whatnot. But Taiwanese were pretty much willing to make that bet. And they were also quite confident. So among the equipment manufacturers at the time, there were a couple that were started and run by Chinese. So they had a lot of input into selection process and sort of construction process of the fab because, you know, they really knew their new stuff, they knew what equipment, the limitations and whatnot. And they had equipment running in RCA, they had equipment running in Intel. So they had all the data in terms of like, what's the good stuff and how, like what conditions, you know, made for the best yields. So team comes back, Fab's pretty much built and everything is pretty much up by running by 1978. So within four years, they went from zero semiconductor production capability to a proper Fab. And within a couple months of running, they had far surpassed RCA in real rate. To the point where RCA was like, can we buy this Fab? <laughs> <laughs> So these semiconductors, where did they go? Like, where are these production semiconductors from Taiwan, these early ones? Have you been able to see any or like any like that? Some of the capacity went to RCA. So basically within the contract, RCA was like, you know, we'll do a buyback program. So we'll help you build this fab, but then we also you know, get basically discounted ICs from you guys, discounted chips from you guys. Other than that, they had a hard time in the very beginning to finding any willing customers because one, you know, the local Taiwanese, they didn't trust this government project at all. And so you had the story of like Hu Dinghua, who's like, you know, the head honcho of this program, running around different factories in Taiwan, calibrating machines for chump change in order to keep this, <laughs> in, order, in, order, in order to keep funding this fab. And eventually, I think it was Su Xingtai, he came through with one of his friends in Hong Kong, was in the Hong Kong watchmaking industry. And so they gave him their first serious contract for chips. I think they had some military contracts, very, very small scale. Uh, one of the stories I heard was the very first chip that the fab actually made was a military contract for. The military wanted to send propaganda leaflet balloons over to the mainland. And the ICs were supposed to, you know, time it so that the leaflets would drop at a certain designated area. And it failed horribly. <laughs> so the, at the time, the military was like, oh, well, this, like, IC project is, like, doesn't work at all. Like, <laughs> the, the balloons didn't drop. And so they did, actually did a postmortem on, on the failure. And they were like, oh, it wasn't the ICs. The ICs were fine. It was, like, the battery or something like that. Uh, so, you know, that's very interesting. They vindicated themselves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then, yeah, once the Hong Kong contract came in, the next big one was, I think, from Oki, which is a Japanese electronics manufacturer. So Casio bought all their IC from Oki. And then this was also very interesting timing because at the time, Japan, under industrial policy, with, was run through MIDI, their version of the technological and industry organization. They were very much favoring all the all the big companies, right? like Mitsubishi, Sony, whatnot. And so smaller guys like Casio and Oki, right, they had a hard time getting capacity at the Mitsubishi fab or like any of the sort of big Japanese companies. So they came to Taiwan 
And that's actually where Taiwan really got their first foreign customer. And that was huge because Taiwanese industrialists like, don't trust a lot of local stuff. Until they get, there's a foreigner who approves, they, will, <laughs> they refuse to like, step in and you know, like, entertain the idea of buying local. That's really cool. So at this time, UMC, TMC had not started yet. This is all just yeah, this directly all, through the government. Exactly. It is all through E3 at the time. But then, you know, previously mentioned, there was a sort of impetus to turn this project private. And so, you know, Wang Zhaozhen, after this whole kerfuffle with RCA, he was saying, he's out. He, like, left on very bad, very, very bad terms. So he's out. And then Fang Qianqi takes over as the V-Tree. And so he's very much the guy keep pushing this privatization thing forward. And so 1978, the demonstration fab is set up. 1979, the process for UMC spinoff was already happening. And 1980, it happens. And it was a success, right, in a sense, because, you know, you privatized it. But now you have a direct competitor and they have all the same technology as you and they want the same customers as you. So competition sometimes, let's say, unhealthy competition between the two of them, between the Fab and UMC. But that also, the spinoff also signified to local industry that this was a proper business and this was a proper business opportunity. So within like a couple of years, dozens and dozens and dozens of local semiconductor companies, usually from like these like large conglomerates like Danatong or like Formosa Plastic, they're like, we want to build our own fabs too. They started, you know, building chip companies left and right. And that was very draining on Yichi because that was, Yichi is sort of the, the hub for all semiconductor talent in Taiwan. And now you have much more lucrative opportunities elsewhere. So I think at a point, like Yichi was going to, like, especially the electronic research center was going to like 80% turnover year over year because they said everyone's getting poached. So like Yichi was pretty, pretty burned out or has been pretty burned out since then. So yeah, so 1980 UMC you know, becomes the first IDM in Taiwan. A couple years later, things sort of keep going on, but there's like no sort of big innovation, no, no big success stories in the intervening years. And in 1985, Morris you know, Taiwanese government after trying for many, many years to try and convince Morris Chang to come to Taiwan. Finally, get their man. So Morris, right, he was passed over for the CEO job at TI. And that being his dream, you know, he left the company because he was like, it was never going to happen. He went to General Instrument for a little bit, didn't like it at all because he wanted innovation and proper production. GI was, I mean, at the time, a much more financialized company. They were interested in M&A, they were interested in, you know, spinning off divisions and you know, making, playing the market, basically. And so Morris was out within, I think, a year or so. And at the time, he was also going through some sort of personal troubles, divorced his wife and whatnot. So when Taiwanese government came knocking, I think he saw that as like a good opportunity to just go somewhere new and then regain his bearings and figure out what's next. So he gets invited back to become head of E3 in Taiwan. Very much a culture shock on Morris's on both ends, I think. Because E3, you know, being a government organization, sort of continues this trend of, you know, like, oh, like government workers are like, they take it easy. It's not so intense. There's no, the deadlines aren't so strict and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Morris comes in, right? His, all this TI training is immediately very, very demanding. And people don't like him at all. Because <laughs> he's like, you know, who's this guy coming in telling us what to do and like yelling at us all the time? And I think Morris was like, it's probably not a long-term solution being at E3. <laughs> But good thing for him, I think KT Lee at the time, he takes over as economic minister. And he saw that it is a complete waste to have more Shang hanging out at a research center. We had to like get him back into the private sector. So that's where the origins of like where TSMC as a company starts. KT Lee very much was like, you know, Morris, let's do something. And then he had his full backing. But the condition was that Morris had to go find a large foreign investor. It could not be all government funded like UMC was. And Morris was like, okay. And then he takes a look around at sort of semiconductor landscape at the time and was like, okay, Taiwan has no design. Taiwan has like no R&D. Taiwan can do production. 
So we will do just production. And a lot of people were like, okay, now like, you know, this is sort of the origin point of the, of the whole pure play foundry idea, which has gotten a lot of pushback, especially from Bob Sal, who claims that he's the one who first came up with it. But I think neither of them were really sort of the <laughs> progenitors of this idea. There's this uh, Carver Mead and Lynn Conway, these professors in the US, um, I think Caltech and then Bell Labs, long time ago, they already like proposed separation of some kind of companies into foundry and design and then you know actually i talked to some of the itchy folks from back in the day they're like oh yeah like we've read the papers back then and whatnot but no one had the balls to do it like, mm-hmm. <laughs> no one had the courage to do it because it was just so out there and then bob tell actually he sort of started stepping in that direction already so when morris was selling gi bob tell flew to and a couple guys flew to new york to pitch him on basically like solicit morris's ideas on this project they were thinking about which is basically building a fab with an alliance of other partners. In a sense, it's basically a dedicated foundry, but it's not pure play because UMC was still an idea at the time. They were just building a foundry with the partnership of other companies and so that everybody within this partnership can have access to chips. And then Morris takes it to the crux of the idea where it's pure play. We don't do any designing ourselves. We only serve customers. So in a sense, it's like, yeah, like they all sort of had to claim on the idea. But it doesn't matter, right? Because ultimately, it was more that executed, and that's what counts. So getting those foreign investors, like, what was that process like? It was hard. So Morris obviously has deep connections with TI. They passed. I think after a couple of meetings, they were just like, Taiwan back then is like, it's nothing, nothing serious, right? And then, you know, it's not cheap. I think Intel was pretty much the same. By the time, I think, you know, like, companies like RCA and Hughes and whatnot, they're already, they out, they're already past their prime. So there was no point in, like, starting a new semiconductor company with legacy technology. So eventually he goes to finds Philips and Philips is what I think he calls Philips the best of the second runners. <laughs> so still not an ideal first choice. But Philips already had invested heavily in Taiwan. So it had a heavy Taiwan presence and their semiconductor division had a testing and packaging plant in Taiwan already. So there was sort of this relationship there already. But Morris was most interested in Philips's IP portfolio. So semiconductors a lot has to deal a lot with intellectual property, especially like different components on a chip. Right. You don't have to redesign the entire component if you could just use something off the shelf as long as you have access rights to it. So he was very, very interested in the production that Phillips would bring to the table, especially for a nascent semiconductor company. So Phillips ends up investing, they get 27% ownership. The Government Venture Foundation had like 48%, I think. You mean NDC? I don't think it was NDC. I think it was actually like, um, it was one of the development banks was the main guy. And then the rest were from local investors. No one at the time thought this was going to go anywhere. They're all like, okay, this is just money down the drain. This is just like, keep the government happy. We're going to invest. And so, you know, famously, Wang Chin, head of Formosa Plastics, you know, sells his stake when TSMC goes public in Taiwan a couple years later. And, and you know, you hear stories of like these companies, they, they're cleaning out their storage space and then they find like TSMC stocks that they didn't know existed because everyone just like wrote it off immediately. Wait, wait, there's stories of this? Yeah. So like the company wrote off their TSMC investment immediately after it was made because it's like, <laughs> it's not, it's not, it's not going to go anywhere. And then, you know, they, they got the stock and just, you know, threw it into storage. And then years later, they come back and you're like, oh, this is like treasure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, they signed Phillips and then the government basically hands TSMC the best sort of starting conditions for any startup imaginable. They gave them an entire fab. They gave them a lot of E-Tree staff and researchers and whatnot. And they gave them equipment. So I think, you know, right, like all the startup costs were pretty much given. And that was, the government justified it by taking in more stock in the company. They actually only invested like 30-ish percentage in terms of like pure just cash. And then the rest were transferring assets to TSMC. And this is also where the TSMC-ASML relationship starts. So... The story I've heard was, you know, back then, Nikon, Canon were the two, and I think Perkins Elmer were the three biggest. Nikon. People yeah. give me a lot of crap over 
Nikon. Don't say Nikon. It's a Nikon. <laughs> okay, well, uh, so those three were the big, especially in like lithography, they're the big guys. And ASML was very much an upstart. Also, Philip's relationship. But supposedly, the story goes that at the time, it was 1987, U.S.-Japan relations, especially on an economic front, were not so good, right? Like, Japan was very much booming, and U.S.-American businesses were very scared of Japan and had all this, like, fear of Japan taking over the world and whatnot. And so the first CEO of TSMC is this guy called James Dykes, American guy. And he did not like the Japanese. So he wanted ASML equipment. And that's how the TSMC ASML equipment came to be. Is that what you found or is that what the ASML book says? That is what I found. So the ASML book, their story is apparently TSMC somehow decided to buy ASML machines. And then they had a fire in the fab. ASML machines were completely destroyed and they had to send it back. And at the time, ASML was like in serious financial trouble. And this like emergency TSMC order saved the company. It's not true. Uh, <laughs> so I asked around and there was a fire in like some warehouse. And it was like, it was no big deal. Like, I couldn't, I also, like, you know, I went to like look for records in like the fire department and whatnot. I was, like, couldn't find this fire. And it was like, this has to be pretty big news, right? It's like, they burned down their fab. Yeah, like, yeah. All these lithography machines never happened. But I think at the time, ASML was in sort of dire financial straits. Perhaps through the TSMC order, they did very much salvage the company. So this TSMC order that came in then, where did it come from? I don't know where this like double ordering story happened. I guess this would be either it was just one order and then like that was enough to save ASML or it was two separate orders. Like, TSMC decided to, like, to do CapEx investment right, and just buy more machines or something like that. Yeah, because it was an unsourced claim, so I really don't know where it came from. Interesting. Yeah, okay. So during TSMC's early days, like... You talked about the funding, you talked about the people there. Like, what were those early days like? What was TSMC's early customers like? So what was that about? So I think it was good that they had the Philips investment as well, right? Because like, even though they weren't the best technologically, they were still in the you know, heavy demand of chips. So they always had Philips there. I think the first two years of TSMC's existence were the only two years in their entire history that they did not turn net profit. Pretty amazing track record. At the time, you know, Fabulous was really starting to hit its stride. And it was just like sort of different small Fabulous companies coming in. They were like local companies asking for just like easy chips. So like UMC, I think, got their big win with the telecommunications deregulation in the U.S. breakup of AT&T. And UMC basically supplied chips to all these um, phone switching machines. And at the time, I think Taiwan itself was also like heavily expanding in terms of like switching technology. So there's a wedding coming in from Taiwan, and there's a huge market opportunity in the U.S. Yeah, TSMC, Philips was like the big guy in the, in the beginning, and they had a hard time finding customers in the beginning as well, right? Because like semiconductors are very trust-based, especially for something, new concept, right? Pure play foundry. There was no real like existing customer base there. So they had to go find it. As a lot of these fabulous companies came to existence, they started coming to TSMC as well. I've heard stories about like Jetson somehow calling Morris Tang or something like that, right? Yeah, I think that's, you know, that was when TSMC was in a more established player. They've already hit their stride. And then I think, you're right, NVIDIA just started. And then they've been trying to get orders at TSMC to no avail. And finally, I think Jensen writes Morris a basically asking for capacity. (laughs) And so I believe Morris, he gets married a second time and he's in the U.S. for holiday. And then he calls Jensen. Jensen was in like, some meeting at the time and tells, hey, just shut up, it's Morshang on the phone. This <laughs> is like the biggest deal ever. And then, yeah, like, like Morris, you know, the story goes out, like he took time off his honeymoon to like, go visit NVIDIA and like, you know, took notes, basically like telling Jensen, like, okay, we can like allocate you how many wafers and whatnot. But I think this is like a bit later after KSMC has grown to be more respectable. So going back to those early days, like um, how much time did it take between, you know, TSMC turning profitable and then the company going essentially 
public and exiting that startup phase. So they go public in Taiwan relatively early, early 90s. And so that's actually a fun story too, because when Moore's already, already decided on the TSMC name, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation in English. And then so Hu Dinghua, who was the previously the manager of the RCA project, he was a sort of advisor to TSMC at the time. And then he asked Morris, do you ever plan on taking this company public? Morris says, of course. And so right, the Taiwan stock market, your ticket can only be so long. The Taiwan stock market only had like two or three character limit. So Hu Dinghua asked this very cheeky question to Morris. He's like, so do you want to be known as Taiban or Taidao? Or do you want to be known as Taiwan Semi or Taiwan Conduct? Because in Chinese, the name would be Taiwan Bandalti, Gongsi or something like that. And so Morris is like, neither. Those sound horrible. <laughs> <laughs> and so if you look at the Chinese name for TSMC, it's Taiwan Jiqi Dianlu. And Jiqi Dianlu is actually integrated circuits. So there's a sort of difference in the Chinese and English naming due to attractiveness of the Chinese ticker. Wow. Yeah, so they go public pretty quickly. Um, I think, you know, they were relatively successful. And then the 90s, you know, it's capacity expansion and early established companies coming to them. And then they really hit their stride in the dot-com boom. Basically, at the time, they UMC and TSN were pretty neck and neck. TSN was always, was always ahead, but UMC was always a close second. And so at the time, Morris decides, okay, we're going to take this seriously. And we're going like, to seriously expand. So TI had partnered with Acer. They had like, a joint fab a few years prior. And then it wasn't very profitable. So Morris merges TI-Acer into TSMC. Basically, you get a new fab overnight. And then at the same time, he also does it with um, worldwide semiconductor. So, you know, they pretty much like increase the entire capacity by two fabs within a couple of months. And these were fabs in Taiwan? These are fabs in Taiwan. Okay. This was actually right after their ADR in the U.S. So, you know, TSMC, you list in Taiwan. You don't just like list directly as a company on the your stock exchange. So you have this like mechanism to call the American depository receipts. So basically, it's like some sort of a, this like mechanism where you could list uh, the U.S. and it, it tracks somewhat quite closely to the Taiwan stock. And so, you know, they got a massive cash infusion from the ADR listing. And then so now they, they have to buy things to get these two mergers done. This is also the origin story of of SMIC because the founder of SMIC was the CEO of the second merged fam, the Worldwide Semiconductor. And he did not want to work for TSMC. He did not want to work for Morris. He goes to China and he starts SMIC. The Chinese government actually you know, put in quite a lot of effort too because he was quite famous for being like a very good fab builder. Yeah. He like knew sort of all the logistics in and out and like how to do things very quickly. So Chinese actually like went like quite a long way to like woo him. And they even built like a, like a, a chapel in Shanghai. Right, it's a communist country, like building a chapel for, <laughs> for a Taiwanese, Taiwanese entrepreneur to go and set up a semiconductor. I remember he was very religious, right? Yeah, but he's very religious. Like, if you want to be like in the in-group at SMIC back in the day, you had to go to church. Because <laughs> that's where like all the top executives hung out and like they all, yeah, they're all like deeply religious. Wow. That was apparently even an interview question for SMIC. They would ask you if you were a Christian or not. Yeah. Probably very legal <laughs> in America. So looking back on it now that, um, you know, this incredible story spans 10, 20 years, like what were some of the lessons you would have or reflections based on this semiconductor story? So, you know, timing is always important. I think the government, they were very prescient in sort of pushing for privatization of the project from day one. Concurrently, when the Taiwan project was happening, RCA actually had a contract with Brazil, Brazilian government, doing the exact same thing, basically. So it was like an RCA engineer at the Ohio Fab, which the Taiwanese team actually knew him. He was basically just like spent the day and night drafting this um, plan for Brazil. Uh, this is how you're going to build the fab. This is how you're going to use the equipment. This is what the materials you're going to use, blah, 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 blah. Obviously, Brazil is not a semiconductor manufacturing powerhouse today. So fundamental scientific understanding and technological understanding of how everything operates was a very good decision by the Taiwanese government. And the push to 
privatization was very prescient because, you know, you never know. Especially if you just look at the RC project and how much bureaucratic infighting was going on, imagine that, but extend it to like an actual company yeah. <laughs> with the money involved. Like, yeah, it's never going to end well. And the Koreans at the time wanted to do some kind of as well. They tried and failed with their version of E-Tree. And then like the project failed and then whatever assets were left was transferred to Samsung. And that's sort of where Samsung, you know, really starts. But also, I've heard a story where before UMC, so E3 Fab was running, and then there was like, these like Chinese entrepreneurs in the US, they want chips. So they come to E3 and be like, hey, can we order, you know, X amount of chips from you? And, you know, obviously they don't have one small three-inch Fab. So they're like, you know, we can't give you that many chips. And one of the guys goes to Korea and like takes all the know-how. And then they basically work out some deal. And then that's the origin story of Korea's semiconductor industry. Wow, Tim, that was an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for sitting with us today. It's always fun to talk about these things. Well, thank you very much. Have a great one. And I'll see you guys later. Mm-hmm.